The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. In all of this, you'll see the details of your own story. The story of a life well-crafted. Welcome to the House of Roll. The promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? It's time for populism with a purpose. Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician. And she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. Welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. The traditional media and traditional partisan politicians on both sides of the aisle have been working overtime trying to inflame your passions again this week. And all that well-televised fire, fury, and bedevilment just extends and intensifies the hyper-partisanship in both Washington and Sacramento that gets in the way of solving any of the vexing problems facing our nation. My purpose is different. I've come to inform you, to give you information that will enable you to make an independent judgment on current events and to encourage you to act on those judgments. As a businesswoman, I focus a lot on the numbers. The numbers tell me what's out of the norm, what needs attention, what's got to be triaged immediately, and then how to prioritize the necessary changes. And by the numbers this week, 62% That's the number Gallup poll says U.S. adults estimate that the news they consume is biased. Again, American adults, according to Gallup, think 62% of the news they get is biased. Carrying on with bias, $800,000 is just chump change to New York Congressman Chris Collins. So why risk jail? And astonishingly, instead of answering that question, the Wall Street Journal argues this week he shouldn't have been indicted at all. Here to discuss these and any other subjects that he wants to cover, my friend and colleague, Craig Roberts. Craig is the program director at Salem, San Francisco, and the host of Lifeline, Northern California's longest-running and most widely respected talk show, tackling the issues that affect your life and your world. You can hear Craig on sister station KFAX from 5 to 7 every weekday night. And because he isn't busy enough, join Craig on KDOW weekdays at 10 p.m. and on weekends from 6 p.m. on as he takes you back to the golden years of radio before there was television, YouTube, and social media. Craig, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Days before television, YouTube, and social media. Sounds like like heaven heaven on earth. (laughs) (laughs) Great to be here with you again, Joyce, and get a chance to talk about some of the things going on in the world of politics, news, social media, media. at all. It is a real circus these days, isn't it? It is a circus. I mean, I had to to laugh um, last, I guess, Wednesday night. Lester Holt of NBC News had on the um, CEO of Twitter, 
who referred to removing Alex Jones's Twitter privileges, tweeting privileges, I guess we should call them, as, quote, a time out. <laughs> like he was dealing with a five year old. Five year old to the corner. Yeah, sending the kid to the, you know, time out. <laughs> but if we go back and look at what happened in the news this week, uh, more than 300 newspapers across the United States on Thursday morning published an editorial arguing that the historic freedom of the press, our First Amendment rights, um, are, are in danger in the face of President Trump's pronouncements. The press is the enemy of the people. The press is the opposition party. The Topeka Capital Journal, a newspaper based in Topeka, Kansas, joined in that coordinated effort. No one will be happy all the time with what a journalist or a news outlet produces. But being called an enemy, and not of a politician or a cause, but of the whole people of the nation, that's something else entirely. It's sinister, it's destructive, and it must end now, to which... Craig and I have to add, as commentators, it's downright scary. Well, it is indeed. And I think, you know, historically, and perhaps the president is is uh, not crazy, but crazy like a fox here, in that he knows this is going to ignite debate and controversy and attention, uh, just as he has continued to, yet season two, uh, bring up controversy and criticism of the players, the football players that kneel during the national anthem. But the I think the, the disturbing trend here is that historically, when the phrase enemy of the people was tied to the free press, typically your last name was Stalin or Castro when you made those yes, kinds of remarks. That, that, or, or, or Hitler. Or Hitler. And, and I understand that the president is frustrated but I think there's also a case to be argued here that he needs to grow a little thicker skin because it is the express job of the press to make the president's life, to make Congress's life miserable. And I think it's fool's folly to suggest that somehow we are criticizing the press because we perceive that they used to be this bastion of integrity that somehow has gone sour. Um, I go back to the days of remembering William Randolph Hearst. Have you heard of yellow journalism? invented journalism. yellow journalism. Exactly right. Didn't he start a war? Didn't the Spanish-American war yes. get started because of stories that were intentionally planted by Hearst? So this is not new. And we've joked about, you know, funny stories of three-headed men and monsters from space coming to inhabit bodies that make front-page news on the National Enquirer. That's not surprising. I think what's disturbing disturbing here is the degree to which the rhetoric is being used. And again, I think the president has a degree of argument here. At the same token, you have to wonder, uh, the press in the current state of uh, the fifth estate and the fourth estate, is it a monster of our own making? Is this a case where the press has been intentionally going out and shaping opinion? Or are we seeing a lot on the six o'clock news that quite frankly is just a response to American public opinion. I think it's I think it's all three of those things. And you know what? We're going to take them on one at a time right after this commercial break. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. 
And we're back with Craig Roberts, the host of Lifeline on our sister station, KFAX. And as we went to break, we were just running down the five causes of the increased angst about a free press and whether that press is um, an enemy of the people. And so, you know, I think one of the things that is true, and and you, you alluded to this, is that we have so many choices now that those choices, you know, allow you to be to be self-serving as a consumer of of the press. And that's our fault, but it's also a fault of the press because the big media outlets tend to have a bias. You know, I agree with the people who responded to the 44% who responded to the Gallup poll who said, you know, there is bias in every story. Um, I think that's probably true and that that's reflected if you watch NBC, ABC, and then Brett Baer, all of whom air at the same time on different networks, you you wonder, are you, they all living in the same country? Well, and there is a degree that I think there's that sense of cross-pollinization. And, and, and let's be clear about something. There's often this repeated phrase of media bias and somehow that the media should always be neutral on all subjects, all topics. That, I think, is the stated goal. But I don't know that it's a goal that we can ever really truly achieve. And I'll tell you why. Because no matter who the reporter is, who the writer is, all of us have our own insights, our own life experiences, our own lens, so to speak, through which we see life events and then report on them. And that reporting somewhat colorized by our history, our understanding, our knowledge, our beliefs. So I don't think there is any such thing as really pure, unbiased Reporting, but, but that said, historically, at least the press made an inf- an effort to try and disengage themselves from going into the story. They took that two degrees separation, taking two degrees step back, and saying, "Here's what I see, what's going on," and then they put the disclaimer in. And now I'm about to tell you what I think about it. The problem today, Joyce, is that distinction is no longer made, that you cannot tell reporting from opinion. That's problematic. The other thing I think that's growing problematic in terms of creating this great cultural divide in our country today, the political divide is, and you alluded to this as well, that we have the capacity today to pick and choose. 30, 40 years ago, you read the Chronicle because that was the hometown newspaper. You watched NBC News because that was the channel you could receive. Today, you could go shopping. And I think what's problematic with that is people will tend to be drawn to like. They will be tend to, to be drawn into those media outlets, those reporters that tend to um, report on stories from the angle of their belief, be it either their moral persuasion, their political persuasion, their, their religious persuasion, what have you. And as a result, it now sets up this us versus them mentality where I shop for the media that agrees with me, I eschew all others, and anybody that doesn't agree with my opinion suddenly becomes the enemy, or if you're the president of the United States, suddenly becomes the enemy of the people. People. And I think that gets to be dangerous. Even when the press seems to be completely unhinged, there's enough reporting out there if you're sampling what ABC says and what Fox News says. When I prepare for my nightly program, and I know sometimes this shocks listeners. 
I will say, today MSNBC reported, and people will say, you're listening to MSNBC and not Fox? Oh, absolutely. Because I want to know what the other side has to say. I want to get a chance to review all input, all opinion, and at the end of the day, I take my life, my experiences, my education, and I filter And I come to the conclusion of what I think the real truth is. Part of this, quite frankly, even goes back to a failure in public education where we have gone from teaching students how to think to rather teaching them what What to think. think. So is the press at fault here? Yes. Is the president at fault here? Yes. Yes. But the one group of people that aren't receiving any blame that need to receive blame, and that is the trends that have taken place in education, that have created a mentality amongst the consumer, which is really what we are, we are the consumer of news product, that we do no longer have the ability to take in multiple opinions and then draw our own conclusion. We go shopping for those opinions that seem to align with our preconceived notions or ideas. And this is the result, where you see this tremendous gulf in political opinion in the country and suddenly setting up the us versus them. You know, it's okay if the enemy is an outside enemy, but if you look historically at the decline of any major culture, be it the Roman Empire, the the Greek Empire, the Soviet Union, every one of them disintegrated because the enemy was an enemy within. They began to feed on themselves. My biggest fear is that's what's beginning to happen here. And that's my greatest fear, and I read a quote from Joseph Goebbels this week along those same lines about, you know, I'm going to paraphrase because I don't have the quote with me, um, along the lines that if you tell a lie often enough and emphatically enough, you make it true. Mm-hmm. And and that is what's happening. Now, when I was had my first journalism class way back in high school, you know, they said you have to, a reporter asks where, what, why, when, and how. And we don't do that anymore on the front page of major American newspapers. I know oh, the I opinion read page has moved I, to the front page, unfortunately. Yeah, you know, the, the uh, it's amazing how differently the facts, you know, I mean, one of the things I try to do with my listeners, and I do the same thing as you do. I watch MSNBC. I watch ABC. I watch, you know, um, Fox um, because I'm looking for what are – but the first thing I do is I go out and figure out what are the facts. What what are the irrefutable facts, you know, the numbers, whatever they are, that you cannot manipulate? And then you can apply opinion to that, and that – and and we have license to do that because we're commentators. Well, I think there are two. But, but on the front page of a newspaper, there's no place in the front page. It's it belongs in the opinion section. But there's also, I think, the degree to which we also have to apply the lens of history to then put all of this in perspective. For example, we mentioned off the air, everybody's up in arms because the president's talking about this big battle between he and the press. Well, he's not the first president to do it. In fact, for all the Democrats that are upset about the president doing this, let me take you back to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who in the 1930s, as the press began to criticize the New Deal, suggested that the press ought to be licensed. And they were going to then decide who was legitimate and who wasn't legitimate based on licensing, wink, wink, 
It's the same thing as his attempt to try and pack the court because he wasn't getting Supreme Court decisions that went his way. So this is not the first time that the president has had these kinds of battles. I think, again, the bigger and broader issue here is if we want to get to the real truth, we, number one, need to hold the media accountable and say, if you're going to share opinion, share opinion, but keep it on the opinion page. And that we as consumers need to do a better job of what we consume, when we consume it, and that we are participatory. It's not just the press said so and therefore I believe it, like the old adage, it's on the Internet, it must be true. But then to be able to digest it and give it some thought to meditate on it and say, okay, based on what I've read, what I've studied, what I know of history – wherein lies the truth here, really? And then with that information, how does it inform me as a voter, as a taxpayer, as a citizen? And what resources, given the the resources we have, what resources am I going to use to determine whether or not what I just heard was propaganda or some form of fact? I will tell you what I've told my listeners many times down through the almost 30 years that I've hosted my show. If someone comes up to me and says, I listen to your show all the time. In fact, I only get my information from you. That frightens me. That doesn't compliment me. That frightens me. And the first thing I will say is, if that is the case, sir or madam, you are sadly and horrifically underinformed, hopefully not misinformed. I hope I do a good job to try and put the truth out there. But you've got to be able to look at multiple sources and then draw your own conclusion. So if you're proud to only listen to Fox News... That is a warning flag in my mind, just as much as the person who says, I live and die by every word that flows out of the mouth of uh, whoever your favorite host might be, uh, probably not for this audience, but whoever your favorite host might be <laughs> on MSNBC. Um, yeah, well, there are, you know, there are some relatively conservative people on MSNBC. Ryan, you know, Ryan I mean, Williams is not a liberal. And, and every once in a while. And nor is Nicole Wallace. No, Nicole Wallace certainly isn't. <laughs> not, and, and, you know, or Stephen Schmidt. They're every not once liberals. in a while, yeah, I will tune in Rachel Maddow just to say, okay, what's her. the other have to, side have to say? You know what I love about Rachel Maddow is, is she is such a gadfly. She goes and gets stuff that nobody else has, and then she brings you the transcript. Now, how she's getting this information is a mystery, but that is... Maybe she's uh, got connections public. to Omarosa, <laughs> I, secret recordings. I, I, didn't want to, I didn't want to say I that, know. Craig. I'm sorry. I apologize. <laughs> and we're going... On that, on that note, we are going to break. <laughs> and we'll be back in just a moment to talk a little more about the press, and then we're going to take on congressional ethics. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. And we're back with Craig Roberts from KFAX Lifeline, 5 to 7 every weeknight, and KDOW's Yesteryear, 10 o'clock in the evening on weekdays, and Uh, at 6 p.m. on weekends, and well worth your time and attention. And Craig and I have been talking about whether or not the press is the enemy of the people, or if the people are their own worst enemies by not shopping around more, by taking single-source information in a world in which they are awash in data. 
You know, at the end of the day, Joyce, we have helped to create this monster because it all turns on one thing and one thing only, ears and eyeballs. And if you don't set your eyeballs or ears to it, they will eventually go out of business. And so being a better consumer, being more discriminatory, or, or let me rephrase that, having more discriminating taste when it comes to the kind of resources that you access and then what you do with that information, that's not on the press. That's not on Washington, D.C. That's on you. So I think there's a degree to which Americans need to start owning up for how we consume information and what we do with the information that we consume. Well, I'll go one step further. I'll say that I'm concerned about the viability of a Republican democracy, and that's small r. In other words, we are not a direct democracy under the Constitution. We're a republic, a, a representative democracy. But I fear for the future of that democracy when we have such a division of data points that people cling to almost at the exclusion of reason. Oops. I'm not chasing Craig out of the room as he's running out. What is happening is there is a transmission tower failing, and Craig is the only person around who can fix it. So we're going to have to uh, pick up our conversation with Craig on another day uh, because there are a bunch of other points that he and I wanted to make. But uh, we're going to use the rest of this hour to talk about a couple of other things, including um, going, continuing on this idea of the press um, and their uh, biases. Um, you know, I'm uh, as most of you know, I I'm a, a conservative, fiscal conservative. I'm a free marketer. I'm a free trader uh, by both back by background, experience, and philosophy. Uh, and thus, I am a subscriber to the Wall Street Journal. But lately, it's not the journal that I am used to reading. It is not the journal of objective um, economic news anymore. Uh, it's almost the right-wing reaction to The Economist magazine. Uh, and, and this past Wednesday, I was shocked and I do mean, and 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 you know, it's hard to shock me. You can surprise me, um, but you can't shock me very often. But I was shocked by a Wall Street Journal editorial that took on the Department of Justice and said that it was inappropriate for them to um, indict. Uh, sitting Congressman Chris Collins um, of New York. Uh, for um, insider trading and um, and lying to the FBI about insider trading because, drum roll please, because he's in the middle of an election campaign. The Justice Department, they said, should not interfere in a election campaign. Now, that makes no sense to me. First, Collins is probably one of the richest men in Congress, been there for 20 years, been trading for longer than that. Again, he's worth $60 million. He knows the rules on insider trading. Second, if you remember Martha Stewart, there is an example 
of exactly what happens when you insider trade in a highly speculative uh, healthcare stock and then lie to the FBI about doing it. So having said that, does the Wall Street Journal believe it would be more appropriate for DOJ, Department of Justice, not to indict Mr. Collins and let the people of upstate New York reelect him and then indict him, at which point you would have you would potentially have a special election to replace him because as you probably have seen in the press, he has suspended his reelection campaign. Um, he knows he's going to make a deal probably to to protect his son. Uh, but would that be better? Would it, in, in the opinion of the Wall Street Journal, it would be better for this first congressperson who supported Donald Trump to be reelected by a uh, constituency that didn't know that he was guilty or, or that he was potentially guilty of insider trading. That, that's the tenor of the uh, story that the Wall Street Journal wrote. And if you take that to its logical conclusion, that means no member of Congress, because they're in this constant, the minute they get reelected, they got to start raising money and going out and doing the, you know, chicken and pea circuit to get reelected. That means under those rules that the Department of Justice cannot indict a sitting congressman if it's during a campaign season. First, how do you define a campaign season? They've not yet had their primary election in New York for anything except congressional seats. So if you're going to have a special election in September, that would be a good time to do it. Um, But in the perpetual election cycle, it almost says that a congressman who is guilty of insider trading and lying to the FBI cannot be prosecuted because he's in an election cycle. That is an argument that goes even beyond the arguments that we don't want to get into about whether or not a sitting president can be or whether or not the Mueller investigation needs to be wrapped up or go into mothballs on Labor Day, as Rudy Giuliani has pounded the table to say. Okay, I found the journal's position outrageous on a couple of of points. Those that I've made now that say it's irrational and it would be unfair to the voters of his of Chris Collins district not to know he had potentially committed this offense along with his son and his uh, son's future father-in-law. But it also brings into question the larger issue of ethics that I think we talked about a little bit last week on uh, Sunday's show about the fact that Representative Collins sits on the Energy and Commerce Committee and sits on the Health Subcommittee of the Energy and Commerce Committee. And that is the committee that makes laws and that that govern pharmaceutical companies. And I just wish Craig were still here because we had such a good conversation about this uh, before we went on the air. The issue is, how do you let someone sit on a congressional committee when he is an investor and a board member 
in a publicly traded company that is directly impacted by the legislation that comes from that committee. Do you think there is a potential for a conflict of interest there that goes well beyond the potential for a little bit of insider trading information that Mr. Collins apparently shared with six or seven or eight or nine of his fellow members of the House of Representatives? Do you just think there might be a little conflict of interest? And when we come back... Let's talk a little bit about not just that conflict of interest, but the hypocrisy of a Congress that makes different rules for itself than it does for those of us who are not in government. And we'll be back in just a moment. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. On 860 AM, The Answer. And we're back without Craig Roberts, the host of KFAX Lifeline, who had to leave to take care of a technical emergency in the transmission tower. So uh, we're going to try to carry on here uh, with a discussion of the difference, the hypocrisy between Congress that the rules Congress makes for you and me and the rules that Congress makes for itself. And I think I mentioned last week that during my uh, long consulting career, I had to annually fill out a form that I had to disclose every single share of stock I owned anywhere in order to make sure that I didn't work on assignments where I might have a conflict of interest between the welfare of my stock portfolio, small and, and, and minimal as it was, right, um, that, that there wasn't any conflict between that portfolio and the best interests of the client. And then we turn around and we look at a sitting congressman, very wealthy man, investor in a pharmaceutical sitting on the committee that makes laws for pharmacies. Now, number one, I suggest um, I would give you a small monetary wager that in September when Congress comes back into session, um, that they may make a change in that rule and bring it into alignment with the United States Senate, uh, which has a rule that forbids a sitting senator to also be a member of a board of directors of a publicly held, publicly traded company. Um, So uh, not everyone is in the same boat. But if you go back to uh, what I take umbrage with, with the Wall Street Journal and their sense that the DOJ, that the Department of Justice should not have indicted Collins because we're in the middle of an election cycle, Should they also have kept secret the fact that he was already under an ethics investigation for insider trading within the House of Representatives and that they had passed those rule changes sometime around 2008 when a whole bunch of them got caught with their hand in the cookie jar? Or should that would is it the position of the Wall Street Journal that that information should also have been suppressed and that his constituents not be aware of that information either. 
So let's look at how Congress deals with, you, if you live in this area, you can remember um, some um, shenanigans with insider shares of stock uh, in technology companies that were given as incentives um, either by CEOs or to CEOs uh, prior to the crash at the end of 2001. Um, and at least four of them went to trial, and two of them went to jail for trading for insider trading um, under during that period of uh, what we call the dot com uh, bust. Um, when the when the bubble burst, as we said at the time, and after that. The Congress passed a law called Sarbanes-Oxley, which ensured that a CEO under penalty of prison for perjury and other miscellaneous crimes um, would have to certify that all the adequate controls to avoid um, any um, monkey business about how the numbers that were reported um, to the SEC had been created. Um, and I've worked on creating some of those actual physical um, processes and the and, and and oversaw the creation of actual physical barriers um, in some situations, fiscal rather than physical because they were in fact code that was written that required certain kinds of of authorization in order to make a, transaction and you could not do direct entry into systems and so forth. And all of this was done uh, under under penalty of 10 and 20 year prison terms. So that's how Congress treats the private sector, you know, and it's been, by the way, a very effective system. It worked really, really well. It doesn't deal with things like derivatives, um, which targeted and, and tanked the market in 2008, um, nor has the uh, subsequent Dodd-Frank um, legislation dealt with the concept um, that many of these big banks, for example, uh, that are also regulated by Congress, that these banks are too big to fail, that it is the the no matter how big the risk they take, no matter how um, unethical some of the risks they take are in order to increase their shareholder value rather than their stakeholder value, because you and I are stakeholders in those banks being uh, fiduciarily sound. Um, nobody went to jail. Okay, those banks were considered too big to fail, so the United States taxpayer had to bail them out. And yes, the American taxpayer, thank God, uh, was repaid, and we made a little money on it, you know, a few hundred million dollars in interest, but that was because only some of the banks were really in trouble. But the other part of that equation is that nobody, no CEO of any bank, no CEO of uh, any insurance company that insured these derivatives was held liable. 
because their argument was the organizations they oversaw were so big that they didn't know what their underlings were doing. Now, that argument was also true when Wells Fargo, two years ago, effectively fired a CEO with a golden parachute of uh, somewhere in the neighborhood, I believe, of now I'm off the top of my head, so I, I will go check the number and come back to you next week and give you the accurate number, but I believe it was more than $20 million, okay, while while the customers who were hoodwinked in this in this situation, they lost their credit, um, they were in debt, they were... Um, damaged in in many ways and had no way, absolutely no way, recourse at all. And those are the laws that were passed in or after the 2008 effort in order to protect us, you and me, the consumer, from the banks. And just before we go to break, let me tell you what else Congress did this year. You know, Congress has not been really, really generous in legislating things like infrastructure or securing Social Security or fixing what's wrong with um, government involvement in health care, et cetera, uh, all of which cost you money every day. What they did do was loosen the controls on the not just the small regional banks who needed to be able to lend a little bit more in order to stimulate the economy, but also the really big banks. And what makes that utterly criminal, in my view, is that all of those big banks failed their stress tests. Yes, after all is said and done, and Congress has taken care of themselves, 2008 could happen again. And on that note, We're going to go to break and we'll be back with a few closing thoughts. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. And we're back with just a few closing thoughts. And again, I apologize. Craig Roberts had to run off in the middle of our conversation about whether or not the press is the enemy of the people or the people are their own worst enemies for not being better, uh, smarter, more cynical absorbers of news uh, and not being more curious to check more than one source of news. Because in the final analysis, it's really up to you to find the truth. And in the few moments we have left on Thursday following uh, the president's revocation of John Brennan's security clearance, um, because he doesn't like what John Brennan says about him um, in the press, uh, Admiral McRaven, the uh, retired Navy admiral who was the commander of the U.S. Joint Special Operations Command, in other words, he oversaw the Navy SEALs, for example, the um, raid that that killed Osama bin Laden, um, wrote a letter to the president and said, um, 
he would be honored if the president would also revoke his security clearance. So let's take just a moment to be really clear about what these retired former uh, uh, intelligence and military officers and members of the State Department, because Condoleezza Rice's name has come up as well. These people do not have active security clearances. They do not get briefings. What they have is a... A, poss- a right to a rapid, or or I wouldn't say a right, they have a pathway to a rapid reinstallation of their security clearance in, in a national emergency. And wouldn't you want to have the guy who was number two in the White House on 9-11 be able to be, God forbid, there should be an attack on the United States? Wouldn't you want him to be able immediately to work with John Bolton to say, hey, this is what we know. This is what we knew. Here's the expertise I can bring to this uh, and the 31 years of service um, and knowledge that I can bring to this Uh Effort, uh, and the same is true of a number of people who has whose security clearances have been revoked or questioned. And it's just a question in my mind. Uh, the most important thing is the brain trust of prior knowledge must be protected. Um, as part of national security, but also in order to ensure our future future security. You know, things don't end uh, in in terms of our enemies. Don't stop at the turn of an administration. And so, um, I understand the president's ire at John Brennan, but like McRaven, I think he went too far. And we'll be back next week. Uh, with some interesting information about some changes we are making to the Reimagine America website, uh, as well as some um, exciting upcoming guests that will range from, you know, people talking about women um, and the need. California has now passed a law that now in, requires that women be included in publicly traded companies' boards. Uh, we have... Um, legislation to uh, weaken the liability of publicly owned utilities in our fire season, et cetera. And we're going to have some interesting guests to talk about some of those subjects. In the meantime, I hope that you have a wonderful Sunday. Uh, And remember, if you didn't hear the conversation between Craig Roberts and myself, you can go to reimagineamerica.org and listen to that Uh, entire conversation. And we'll see you next Sunday. Thanks. This has been Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Go to reimagineamerica.org. Join the forum, donate, tell others, and sign up to receive future podcasts. That's reimagineamerica.org. Together, we can reimagine America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.